Wow. You're gonna like this. Oh, no, I'm not. Cause there is no goddamn middle. This is not unlike ancient Rome, by the way. Not so much the family circus. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, when, um, I did, when I did Mary Shelley, I had the same issue with necromancy. A lot of them yeah. wanted to create self-sustaining farms and got into crystals. I know. Okay. I understand that. And, but yeah, I'm reading Livy, uh, who is a shitty historian. Because eerie guy guys. Others say that because Laurentia's body was common to all the shepherds around, she was called a she-wolf, which is a Latin term for whore. You were audible last season. It just, most of it was you slamming the table. As, as <laughs> the, the Romanists at the table. Well, duh. Yeah. Obviously. Ipso facto. Right. You know, to engage in a little bit of dog Latin. You have a sword rat. This is a geek history of time. Where we connect nerdery to the real world. My name is Ed Blaylock. I'm a history teacher here in Northern California, teaching uh, middle schoolers uh, about the wonders of uh, multiculturalism by exposing them to the history of different groups uh, other than our own. Uh, I am also uh, a very proud father of a two-year-old little boy uh, who... Uh, has decided that uh, dinosaurs are just about the coolest thing in the world, uh, which I think is a pretty normal developmental phase. Mm-hmm. Um, he he doesn't seem to quite understand the separation line between dinosaurs and dragons, which Most I'm okay with. Didn't. Yeah. Uh, you know, yeah. <laughs> so uh, that's who I am. Who the heck are you, sir? I'm Damien Harmony. I'm a Latin teacher up here in Northern California, uh, feverishly recording content in case uh, districts decide to do things the right way, uh, and uh, <laughs> uh, using ancient texts to uh, get people closer to understanding uh, each other in all kinds of fun ways. I have a eight-year-old who just lost her top tooth, um, and a ten-and-a-half-year-old, both of whom I'm now teaching Latin. So... We're going to thrive one way or the other. Uh, there you go. Yeah. They, we will summon. Uh, they say if you say Latin the wrong way, you summon a demon. Um, they're close. We summon lemons. So we're one letter <laughs> off. <laughs> uh, I can I can vouch uh, uh, yeah. to, to our listeners uh, for the truth of this. Uh <laughs> Uh, every every so often there will be a message on Facebook. Lemons, you need them. I got them. Come yep. get them, please. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, just and, last and week, after, and after and after about a week, after about a week, the tone becomes pleading. Yes, come get your damn lemons. Of yeah, yeah. So and just <laughs> last week we now. summoned yeah. an imp uh, accidentally, and I don't recommend it because uh, you know what they say: imping ain't easy. All right, and we're we're like less than less than three minutes. Yeah, yeah, we're two twenty five yeah, for that one. Two twenty five, yeah, right? Yeah, all right. Yeah, uh, that three inch fool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm just gonna get, I'm gonna get literally Shakespearean. Yes, please do, please do with my responses. So yeah. <laughs> so last time we we ended with uh, we've been talking about uh, the Far Side. And in order to talk about the yes. far side, of course, we had to get into uh, fresh, French existentialism and uh, theater of the absurd and yeah. Alfred Jerry. Yeah. So, like yeah. you do, 
Um, and like, we ended with Mad like, Ma- like you do. We ended with Mad Magazine last time, um, and yeah. just kind of getting into what Gary Larson himself was reading and consuming in terms of media, in terms of what he was watching as a kid, because that that does absolutely inform uh, what you do with it. Um, and he did have an older brother uh, who scared him on the regular, and he did live in Puget Sound area, so he had access to a lot of, uh, what do you call that, um, flora and fauna. Exploding so, whales. Yeah, that too. <laughs> um, so all of this is going on. Um, he decides to go off to college, and at first he majors in biology and then realizes he doesn't want to, and he majors in communications instead. Um once he got out of okay. college, yeah. Oh. No, I'm just sorry, oh, okay. Okay. indicating sorry. I was listening. Yeah. Okay. Uh, and so. once he got out of college, the the world was, I'd say, in some ways, scarier and at the same time less scary. Um, we've spoken many a time about how the existential fear um, of nuclear explodiness uh, ends up fading into the background. And in some ways, yeah. that lack of um, hypervigilance on it makes it more dangerous. I would just like to point out that when a fear of a thing fades to the background, people care less and then it becomes more of a danger to them. Because I think that is something we could all do well to remember right now. Yes. Yes. In this particular moment. Yes. Yes. So, uh, nuclear annihilation, very scary, background noise, yeah. still very friendly or frightening, but you do tend to make friends with it in some way. Um, while he was looking for work, he starts cartooning, Gary Larson does, and he sold his single-frame cartoons to a local magazine in Seattle. Um, and in 79, and his story is just such an interesting story of like, oh shit, that's literally how they did it back then? Like, have you ever heard the story of how D.B. Cooper... <laughs> Um, just like went up and bought an airplane ticket and then got on and yeah. didn't even give his real name. Yeah. Like you could just do that, right? Yeah. Gary Larson. Buy a ticket, pay cash. Yeah. You know, whatever. And yeah. not even give them your name. It didn't matter. Um, nope. Gary Larson nope. walked into the Seattle I mean, Times. What, what are you going to, what are you going to do? Try to, are you going to try to charge the cabin or something? Like right. what? Come on. So in, in 1979, he walks into the Seattle Times and, uh, he says, Hey, uh, how'd you like to buy my strip? And they look at it and they go, okay. Like, like that. Yeah. Yeah. Like, cause that's how it happened. And so they took on his comics as a weekly comic strip. Um, and continuing from here, he went down his, and he's barely making money at it. He's barely, I, I don't know that he's necessarily making rent, but back then rent wasn't more than half your income anyway. So it was okay. Um, yeah. but he then goes to San Francisco on a bit of a trip and he walks into the San Francisco Chronicle and says, Hey, How'd you like my cartoon? And they say, yeah, we would. Um, we're going to rename it. Uh, and he didn't care. Um, and in January of 1980, <laughs> he even if had... If you pay me, you can call it whatever the hell you he want. He actually man. had a quote where he said almost exactly that. I, I didn't write it down because uh, <laughs> I've got you know enough research in here. But yeah, um, Well, you know, it's the, it's the Winston Zedmore school of, of yeah. making a living. Like, yeah. Dude pay me yeah it's you know call it whatever you want just give me the give me the money so i can make the rent and Mm -hmm. so in january of 1980 his comic started and from then up it exploded um and so i want to take a look at just some fun facts about his comics and then analyze them a little bit 
and then see what through lines we can draw. No pun intended there. Um, so here's some fun okay. statistics. Nearly 14% of his comics have yeah. wild animals in them. Okay. About For 14, yep, you say? 14. Okay. About 12% okay. have dogs specifically. About 10% okay. have scientists. Just under 8% have bugs. Just under 8% have snakes. And just under 8% are dealing with prehistoric things. Really? It's that low for prehistoric stuff? I know. I know. You think about what sticks out in your head, though, right? Yeah. Well, Six, you know, the Thagomizer hopefully doesn't stick out in your head. It will. <laughs> you know. 6% deal with the Old West. 6% okay. deal specifically with hell. <laughs> <laughs> and... Here was a thing that I... Welcome I, to hell, here's your accordion. Right, you know, or, you know, aerobics in hell. Um, and here's the one that really got me. Only 6% deal with cows. Bullshit. Well, yes, Pardon. that too. <laughs> really? Yeah. Okay. So, I just find that funny. So, Gary Larson's... Uh, Farside has been you're still stymied by that I know I, I, I really am but just think about like I can think of like sick Marvin four. sick yep. sick sick uh, cow car. tools yeah car yeah yeah car yeah um and then there's one where they're walking into someone's house yeah and then there was you start running out pretty quick yeah, yeah. like okay yeah. alright they're iconic but but yeah precious yeah so, uh, now, 6% of his comics is still a really huge number. I would also like to point that out, that even though it sounds like a low percentage, it's still an exceptionally large number, and we would do well to remember that as well. Well, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this will not well, age. Not, <laughs> no, no. No, it'll be it'll be this this as a historical document. This will very clearly be from a very specific period yeah. in time. Yeah. <laughs> um, um. So so okay. So he he started in the San Francisco Chronicle in what eighty one? Uh, January of eighty. Eighty. <clears throat> okay, and he retired in ninety five. Ninety five. Okay, so fifteen years. Mm hmm. At a comic, a published comic, mm -hmm. a day, seven days a week. Mm -hmm. So fifteen years times three hundred and sixty-five panels. I I I had a cocktail earlier this evening, and now I'm into a beer. So I mean, I can't do the math in my head, but mm -hmm. that's a lot of comics. It really is. It really is. And 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 those are the ones that got published. Mm -hmm. Anybody who's a creative, anybody who does writing, anybody who does any anything like that knows that's that's if you're really hot, that's like fifty percent of what you actually start trying to draw. Right. Or write. Yeah. That's the man was a machine. He that's, was. He was. Um he was I know that he was carried in almost two thousand newspapers. Um, yeah. but, uh, I don't remember how many, I, I wrote it down somewhere as maybe it'll pop up later. I don't remember how many uh, far side cartoons he actually did. Um, do you have a, do, do you, do you have it there? What syndicate he was, he was signed with? No, he, and that's the thing. He, he ultimately, um, signed with several, 
Um, but he okay. he essentially right. shopped it around and did it his way, like the way that I described. That was more his yeah. his style. So just you know, and and wow. people would like pass it on. Yeah, it's so his his the far side has been analyzed as satire in the past, and it is definitely satire. But it's verbal satire and visual satire. It's not satire on the culture so much as as playing with a language and playing with um, just thoughts. You know, it's like it's like thought experiment satire. You know, like uh, yeah. You know, it, it, it's it's odd to see snakes sitting in easy chairs talking to each other at a party. Yeah. You know, it's, yeah. it's that kind of thing. You it's, know, well, it's it's surrealism. Yeah. Um, which is which is a a cousin of of the kind of stuff that you see in theater of the absurd that you see it's in, definitely a predecessor you know yeah yeah or yeah. predecessor antecedent i guess those are the same thing but yes it it, kind of. it does come from from that tradition um and it's it's an inversion of the accepted reality so it's a send-up of agreed upon conventions and realities right and in many yeah. ways it is because it's in single panel form. Um, it is very similar to Ionesco's efforts at Theater of the Absurd. It's self-contained. It exists as a logic within itself, and then you're done. And it's absurd. Okay. There's no. There's no overarching. Right. There's no plot. Cultural. Lines. There's yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, in many ways, okay. his far side is akin to Rod Serling's Twilight Zone, except that the morality play in every episode is not nearly as overt as it was with Rod Serling. But he also had bottle episodes. So I find it interesting well, yeah, that he grew well, up Serling... watching these kinds of bottle episodes, and this was the predominant form of art that he took when he did it as a visual medium. Well, yeah, and and the thing is, there's there's a, a conciseness mm-hmm. to to that that format. Like if you're doing a gag a day comic in a you know four panel, five panel, whatever format, mm-hmm. <clears throat> there there is a there is a specific as a as a comic. You can probably comment more on this than oh, yeah. than or, or yeah. delve into this a little bit more. Premise setup, but but you have to have you have to have premise setup punchline. Yep. Whereas with what he's doing, you just throw it up there. Mm-hmm. He's doing and, the equivalent to a one-liner. It's all kind of self-contained, and you don't have to. Yeah, yeah, you yeah. don't have to worry about figuring out the way to pace it visually. Right. You don't have to worry about, you know, the uh, uh, <laughs> tying one image to the next image. Right. To, yeah, yeah. You know, none none of that is a concern. You you have you have. It's it's easier, and I'm sure that Larson would probably say, you yeah, know, you know, four panel, five panel, you know, s- strip comic is not something I wanted to do because that was just too much work. But the thing is, what's brilliant about what he did is it's really hard mm-hmm. <laughs> to to be that uh, that that efficient, mm-hmm. that elegant with with reducing, yeah, that yeah. yes, elegant in the in the in the classical scientific sense of elegance. And there's only a couple where it left people wondering, like the cow tools one, for instance, he had to explain it. There's so few that he had to explain because it's all self-contained in there. Yeah. I loved it. Right. So he, he, but interestingly, here's, here's a parallel, right? 
So both the Twilight Zone and the Far Side, which, by the way, are literally a place that is other words. Um, the Twilight Zone is somewhere there. The Far Side is somewhere over there. Um, they're also at a, a, a place that is not here and a time that is not now. Uh, they're both fairly timeless. Um, and they both are critiquing the times in which they live. The difference is the Twilight Zone's totally doing it on purpose. And I think Gary Larson's falling over backward into it. Both of them are looking at the marionette effect that those times had on humanity, though. And that those times had on language and that those times had on expectation. So they are both offering a distorted okay. view well, to get at a larger truth that we'd na- rather not confront. The difference is Twilight Zone did that on purpose. Farside seemed to have done that accidentally. Okay. Um, yeah, because it's really, really like ridiculously obvious that that Serling, as I mean, we talked about in our Twilight Zone episode, mm-hmm. Serling had a point with a capital P. Yes. Like, <clears throat> you know, uh, uh, the night the night is particularly dark in Alabama and Mississippi. Exactly. You know, there's 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 really no getting around what you're trying to say there in mm-hmm. 1960, whatever it was when that episode aired. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, no, 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 no. <laughs> there there is an anvil being dropped here. Yes. Like, yes. And and, you know, Larson as you said, he was he was playing around playing around with words, playing around with with concepts and ideas and, and thoughts mm-hmm. and and you know flipping flipping things around and making them absurd. And the commentary that that creates on his times is indirect. Yes. And 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 what you really I mean to to see the far side as a commentary on the 80s mm-hmm. into the 90s mm-hmm. you you really have to do what we do in this podcast which is really take a look at it and go okay well all right but like what's he what's he saying here what did he mean to do you know, versus what did he do yeah, you yeah. know, authorial intent ain't shit, mm-hmm. um, as we like to say here. Um, you know, and and in his in his own conscious mind, what what he was just trying to do was just, oh, hey, this is clever, and right. and put it down, right? But there's no way to do that outside of the context in which you are exactly. doing it, exactly the historical time, the historical context. And to have been influenced by living in absurd times his whole life, where he had no say over his destiny the whole time, that's going to have an impact, you know? Um, Okay. Yeah. Whereas Rod Serling grew up a little earlier, and he saw, you know, Nazis on the rise, and that had an impact. So... The Far Side does exactly what The Twilight Zone does, but with fewer words and with a single panel. It is clearly satire, even if Larson didn't mean it to be. Like It's so funny that you got to that. Um, and if you look at how he grew up as a young kid at Mad Ma- reading Mad Magazine at a time where Mad was the only thing that kept us alive. And by Mad, I mean Mutually Assur- uh, Assured mutually Destruction. Mutually Assured Destruction. Yeah, okay. So... I, I we we touched on the prisoner's dilemma last time, and there's yeah. this weird 
flipperoo that happens in it where the rational thing will kill you. And so you have to hope that your yeah. leaders are irrational. And what the fuck kind of world is it where you live in where your best hope is that your leaders are irrational and aren't going to try to save you? And that's what's going to save your life. Like it's I, – I cannot – I can't wrap my mind – I mean I – I've I've had friends who grew up with really shitty parents where like you know if you said what you what you really really liked they'd take it away from them so then you had to pretend not to like the thing that you really liked and I saw how that messed up my friends now have a whole society yeah that is dependent on that um and it just wow um yeah yeah well you know and and we we kind of we got into this a little bit last time mm-hmm. um. But, but, you know, um, <clears throat> I don't know how, how many courses you took in, in international relations, poli sci in college. I took one specifically on that. I took a history of the Vietnam war class, a history of world war two class. Okay. So I would count that as three. Okay. Okay. All right. Cause that, All right. those were both very much um, like, Oh, here's what got again, us into. Speaking to the, yeah. 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 Um, but the, the, the really pointy headed game theory, you know, mm-hmm. throw a computer at it and see, you know, what, what, what happens after, you know, 10,000 iterations, what, <clears throat> d- depending on how the, how the, how the person running the experiment weighted the different results, Sure. the, the rational, and I, I, we may have, I, I don't remember whether, whether I got into the details of this, but, but what they, what they've figured out over multiple different runs of the experiment over, you know, however many iterations that it is actually rational to in the, in the classic scenario of prisoners dilemma, shut up, don't say anything Mm -hmm. up until the first time your partner, right. Competitor, whatever the other, the, until the other player flips on you, at which point, after that, you flip on them every single time. Right. And 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 the thing is, I, I I feel I feel like it's important to point out that when we when we when we look at the Cold War as a you know every morning, you know Khrushchev had his finger planted on one button and Kennedy had his finger planted on the other button, you know. That's that's not actually how it worked, and it was a series of, are we going to go along? Are we going to, you know, would, how how are we going to do it? And and, you know, the the game was we're going to keep cooperating, we're going to keep cooperating, we're going to keep cooperating, until the other guy fucks us, at which point everybody dies. Now you put that and in so with, and oh. so it was, and and so and so it was mm-hmm. the rational decision not to push the button first now until. You know, right? Let's accept that the first time someone does, that's pretty much going to end the game. Yeah, too. well, yeah, game over, yeah. So you plug back in your your Camus, where the <laughs> rational thing is to live without hope. Okay. You know, and and if you and and then you accept the absurdity of it all, like all of that is, you yeah. know, that's that's happening at the highest levels, but that's happening at the lowest levels. Like none of it makes any yeah. goddamn sense. So as he's growing up, as Larson's going up, the the thing that keeps us alive is the guarantee of mutually assured destruction, which is the weirdest goddamn thing to keep you alive. 
Um, and as he's growing, the tightened grip of conformity is unable to hold on, and it was shown for what it was. And with all the absurd background of our, our annihilation is happening, too. So here you've got a country that professes to be the bulwark of freedom against uh, conformist communism. And the way that you show that freedom is by so controlling society and limiting what all the, the expressions of art can be um, that you squeeze all the, the liberty out of it to the point where the only acceptable thing to do is Jackson Pollock type stuff because then it has no meanings. So you can't have any kind of political expression in your art, even though art is inherently political, uh, because if you do, then you are striking a blow against freedom by using your freedom. So we all have to conform so that we can be free. And it just, I mean, it's, it's wow. Like growing up in that, I, yeah. So yeah, he starts cartooning the far side in 1979-1980, just as Ronald Reagan, a B-lister from Hollywood who'd become governor of California for two terms, because we have a really dumb history in this state, um, who had narrowly <laughs> lost a primary against Ford in 76, um, mm -hmm. was now starting to show signs that he's going to get the nod as the Republican nominee. Yep. And when you say it out loud like that, it really does sound pretty goddamn ridiculous and absurd. That he, yeah, it really does. Yeah, it, it really, you know, and <laughs> it's and and the thing is, um, <laughs> you know, when when we were who, what I don't remember which episode it was, but but when when I was doing research on on Reagan mm -hmm. for that, a prior episode, probably be Conan then, yeah, yes, yeah. it was. Thank you. Mm -hmm. But when I was when I was looking into the the 1980 election. Mm -hmm. I, of course, only having been, you know, five years old, I did not, I wasn't paying any attention. So I don't, I hadn't remembered, I hadn't remembered that there was actually another Republican mm -hmm. who tried to run, did run, and, and got a noticeable share of the vote because mm -hmm. nobody, nobody actually well not nobody there were plenty of people who really did like reagan but mm -hmm. but there were there were an awful lot of republicans at the time mm -hmm. who really didn't yeah and and there were an awful lot of and there were awful an awful lot of democrats who were um uh, disappointed mm -hmm. in in carter yeah and 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 you know he he himself called it you know national malaise yeah and and so nobody was happy about anything. Yeah. Like like you know we're we're gonna we're gonna vote for for, for the cowboy from from uh, uh, Bakersfield not Bakersfield uh, Burbank. Yeah. We're gonna we're gonna vote for the Burbank cowboy because <laughs> you know he's he's at least giving us this this energetic seeming <laughs> you know Pollyanna rose rose rosy sure. you know view of of ourselves and and has all this hopeful rhetoric so we're going to vote for him but you know we don't really like him that much well and i'm going to you know. i'm going to go one further with you we're going to vote for the guy who pretended to be a war hero over the guy who was an actual war hero yeah like say what you will about the bush guy, guy who actually was a naval veteran yeah, yeah. You know, so it just yeah. So in January of 1980, things didn't quite feel real, and how could they? 
Um, the world was in a massive state of flux. The deadliest threat to humanity was just now a part of the background scenery, like the zombies in The Walking Dead. Um, the far side was about life in a way that wasn't quite real. I mean, the name, first of all, the far side, right? And the typical juxtaposition between the caption, which is our version of Charon, guiding us from the real shore to the unreal far side of the River Styx. Mm -hmm. And the image, thank you, the image, which is the unreal underworld in which we are now transported, made for a really quirky set of humor. Okay, yeah. you you just you just managed to create a a, a an analogy uh, a, a set of symbolism there uh, that that went really dark. <laughs> yeah, there. Um, the eighties I mean, were I mean, a dark the, goddamn time. <laughs> but the eighties were full of primary colors. Like, yeah, I mean, yeah, you're, you're not wrong there, but yeah, at the you same know, time, I mean, yeah, no, I. Yeah, the the existential dread uh, that that hung over everything. I mean, it got to the point I where musicians thought that they could be saving the world because the people who were tasked with keeping us safe couldn't. So musicians started playing music in order to like we are the world. Yeah, you know, Live Aid. Yeah, um, we just have yeah. to hope that the Russians love their children too. Stuff like that. It yeah. just it's. And, and life is just getting more and more absurd. This cartoon is perfect for the time. Ronald Reagan, yeah. the media man, becomes president. And he was called the great community, or sorry, the great communicator, though he rarely said anything of substance. He spoke with comfortable slogans and he used the language to say nothing and yet sound substantive. Here's a couple excerpts from his inauguration speech, okay? He's really good at making us feel comfortable while at the same time ramping up the existential threat to our lives. He's really good at that, and there's your juxtaposition. He's the caption, and look at this picture. And we collectively as a society, we're okay with it, because it, at least it sounds nice, right? This should sound very parallel to Sartre's analysis of the polite German, by the way. So, okay. Here's, here's a quote from Ronald Reagan, 1981, okay? I kind of want to do the voice, but I'm just going to sound like a bad version of Richard Belzer doing his voice, so I'm not going to do it. Uh, <laughs> to a few of us here today, this is a solemn and most momentous occasion. And yet, in the history of our nation, it is a commonplace occurrence. The orderly transfer of authority as called for in the Constitution routinely takes place as it has for almost two centuries, and few of us stop to think how unique we really are. In the eyes of many in the world, this every four-year ceremony we accept as normal is nothing less than a miracle. So, I mean, we both grew up. God, it was it, it was so nice back in, back in a time when we could, you know, take yeah. that for granted. Yeah. So yeah. he thinks his presidency is starting with a miracle, ultimately. <laughs> like, and it's a commonplace miracle, which in itself is a weird juxtaposition. So it makes us feel special. He mentions our uniqueness, despite there being no fewer than 20 others of similar democracies at the time. I went back and counted. There were 20 other countries that, uh, that transferred power peacefully, democratically. And then he says, okay. the business of our nation goes forward. 
I, I have questions. Uh, what does that really mean? From where? <laughs> what business? What is the business of our nation since we're not a command economy? Then he goes on. Those who do work are denied a fair return for their labor by a tax system which penalizes successful achievement and keeps us from maintaining full productivity. Again, he's using words with no substance. He used the phrase, those who. That's deliberately vague. Do work is also very deliberately vague. Fair return, totally undefined. Successful achievement, what the hell does that even mean? And of course, he's doing the boilerplate stuff uh, going after the tax system because somehow taxing the rich is more... Uh, taxing them more is unfair all of a sudden. Um, we must act today in order to preserve tomorrow. He's referring to the economy specifically, but again, no specifics. They will go away because we as Americans have the capacity now, as we have had in the past, to do whatever needs to be done to preserve this last and greatest bastion of freedom. Now, he's, he's referring to the economic woes that took decades to take hold, okay? A rot mm -hmm. within the system that finally clung in. It's interesting that he's calling on the very collectivism that he's disdaining, by the way, and in painting it in this light, he's making it acceptable and co-opting it again. Well, okay. <clears throat> he's, he's calling for collectivism in the sense of, of unity, common effort. Sure. But, but any, anybody who grew up in the the Reaganite cult, mm -hmm. <laughs> for lack of a better word, <laughs> um, will will be able to. I mean, you you're, you're talking about how all of this language is meaningless and and let's none of these terms are defined and all that. Mm -hmm. That's awesome, and mm -hmm. you're right, but at the same time, you're also wrong because his target audience. Mm -hmm knew exactly what it was that he was telling them in code. So it's dog whistling. It's, it's, it is, okay. it is, well, dog whistling has, has a very specific racial connotation and parts of that are dog whistling in that say, sense. Parts of that speech that I've already read to you are. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, are, are, yeah. Are, are that. But, but parts of it are class dog whistling mm -hmm. rather than racial dog whistling and parts of it are, Protestant work ethic, dog whistling sure. for for lack of a better word the 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 American mythos yeah. yeah well yeah the American mythos and and the ingrained idea that that we that we have in this country that that um, hustle is the key mm -hmm. like like that's that's just it if you and, just work harder and you know yeah you know and 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 then and then all of all of that about uh, you know un, unfairly you know not able to reach full productivity right. uh, you know to, the tax system being unfair and all that stuff that is that is that is a thousand percent mm -hmm. the the clarion call of mm -hmm. supply side economics which you know the whole argument was. Um, I mean, there's there's the there's the overt argument, which is no, no, uh, we're penalizing. If if we continue penalizing rich people, rich people aren't going to want to invest their money in in paying people more. So we got to let rich people have that money, so they'll have an invest that they'll have an incentive to right. do stuff with it. Right. Okay. 
which which like okay i understand the train of logic there but having now lived through 40 years of essentially supply side economics being what both sides have done since reagan back it up a hair during the primary george bush argued against it and said that's voodoo economics Oh yeah! Like oh, even yeah. then, it was known as a canard. Oh, yeah, well, yeah, no. Yeah. Everybody. The thing is, the thing is, anybody who knew anything about actual economic theory mm-hmm. looked at it and went, "That's bullshit." Mm-hmm. That's that's no. And and anybody who looked far enough back in history would go, "That's futile." You understand? <laughs> and that's that's how the, that's that's futile, and and that's literally part of how the second estate got destroyed by the bourgeoisie. Mm-hmm. And and the peasant class mm-hmm. during the French Revolution is like, well, but we're the nobility; we don't pay taxes. Right. Do do you do you like keeping your head? Yeah. Because because like, if you push that far enough, long enough, you wind up telling somebody to eat cake. Yeah. And they cut your fucking head off. Well, so here's like, what else. Oh, you know. All right. No, go ahead. Go ahead. So, I've, I've ranted long enough. Carry on. With the idealism and fair play, which are the core of our system and our strength, we can have a strong and prosperous America at peace with itself and the world. Boy. All right. Freedom <laughs> and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on earth. The price for this freedom at times has been high, but we have never been unwilling to pay that price. Double oi. It's been more available. Yeah, you know, on 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 paper, on paper, mm-hmm. it's been more available. Yeah, in and theory, we've had to pay a. So he's saying it's been more available, but we've had to pay pay a supremely high price. But we've always been willing to pay, so it's always been available. And it's like, wait a minute, if you have to pay a really high price, then that means it wasn't available. Well, okay, no. Here's the thing. Here's mm-hmm. the thing cut him some slack okay he graduated he, he got he got his economics degree from from the baron samadhi school of economics that's true so his <laughs> so his grasp of supply and demand is yep. not gonna be you know perfect sure or you know exist uh, you know and 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 when yeah um the 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 correctness mm-hmm. of his of his rhetoric, I think, was much less important in the historical context mm-hmm. than the magnetism of his rhetoric. Like when when yeah. we're when we're sitting here, you and I sitting here forty years later. Mm-hmm. Jesus Christ! It happened anyway. Um, fuck. Yep. Um, but but you you and I sitting here decades later. Having having survived all of that, mm-hmm. have have the benefit of an awful lot of hindsight to be able to look back at that and go, "That's clown shoes." Yes, like that's that's you're not you're not saying anything. This this is a lot of puffery. Yeah, and and empty and empty air and and all of that. But in the moment, mm-hmm. it was a lot harder for a lot of people in the audience to see that because it because the tone of it 
because the the essentially um, uplifting is a word that comes to mind, but complementary might be a better term. Mm-hmm. Uh, ego uh, kind, of, kind of message that was involved. The ego stroking, kind of kind of no no, we are awesome. You're all awesome. Right. You know, USA USA was was something that an awful lot of people responded to because an awful lot of people needed it. Mm-hmm. You know, when when you when you get used to several decades by that time mm-hmm. of being uh, you know, king of the king of the hill. Mm-hmm. And then you suffer one body blow after another body blow after another body blow, you know, Vietnam, oil crisis, recession, Mm -hmm. another oil crisis, another recession, you know, and, and just all these humiliations, there is a, like needing to be important, needing to be powerful. It's, it's an addiction. Yes. And giving anybody, giving anybody a hit of that. Is is there there? It's going to be very very hard for people to remain rational mm-hmm. about it and cold about it. Yes, cold. I'm, I'm, maybe not rational is the right word, but to remain cold about it. Mm-hmm. Again, we're we're sitting here talking about this as as survivors of that era forty years later, mm-hmm. with with you know the benefit of of a whole lot of hindsight and seeing exactly what came out of all of that. Mm-hmm. In in the moment, the power of being told, "No, no, we're awesome, we're exceptional," was yeah, was was cathartic in a in a in a. I don't know if cathartic very, is the right word. I, I would say it is the it is yeah, the equivalent energizing. Uh, yeah, it, it is the equivalent of a five hour energy drink when you're tired. Yeah, you know. That um, works. And so he yeah, he so, brings up the idea of freedom and dignity, which is really kind of interesting because he's actually pulling on old Roman terms of libertas and dignitas on that one. So points for stretching back to the classics there, Ron. Um, here's here's another one of his quotes from that same speech. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah. Points points to his speechwriter. Yeah. Well, not, uh, not Ronnie. There points, was points to his speechwriter. For- I, I, I read an interview with several speechwriters, uh, and they all said the same thing. Because um, people asked, like, okay, you you wrote that special phrase, didn't you? He's like, yeah, I did. Yeah, I did. And like, so how come you don't get credit for it? He's like, it's not my speech. It's his. I wrote it for him, mm-hmm. but it's his. And so speechwriters yeah. regularly say, no, no, no. I wrote it, but he delivered it. Therefore, it's his. He made it okay. work. So, okay. Um. So it's kind of like, you know, Mariah Carey didn't write a lot of her songs, but those are her okay. songs, you know? Yeah, okay. All right, fair. So, so here's another one. It is my intention to curb the size and influence of the federal establishment and to demand recognition of the distinction between the powers granted to the federal government and those reserved to the states or to the people. And this, from what I could read, was the only real policy goal that he's stated plainly and clearly. And I don't think he has to outline a whole plan in his single speech here. I don't think that has to happen. But it's literally the only time he's spoken with any real specificity. And it's in such a way that's absolutely a dog whistle to racists and sexists. Because, hey, states, you can fuck with uh, people of color and women again. And the federal government isn't going to protect marginalized folks from various states' shittiness now. 
So well, and 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 in the context of him talking about states' rights, mm-hmm. it's really really important um, because of the times in which you and I are recording this. Yes, uh, that we that we <clears throat> also that one of us also point out that there are multiple images from his campaign in 7980 mm-hmm. uh, and I think again in 84 mm-hmm. of him and other other high-ranking you know Republicans uh, going full-on Confederate flag hugging or, oh, yeah. or standing in front of Confederate flags when they were campaigning in that part of the country yep um, and I, and, and at that point it hadn't become quite as much of a thing where you'd see a Dixie battle flag in, you know, Indiana, like you'll see now because right. it's, it's taken on a whole different set of loading for, for other idiots in other parts of the country. But, but it's, it's still a, a code you know, it, it was it was still very much a code that you know the the Confederate movement mm-hmm. uh, had had an ally in in that that mm-hmm. cadre. Yeah, well, he's from Hollywood, and Hollywood was absolutely stuffed full the, in the prior generation to him with apologists. I mean, even my beloved Buster Keaton, um, oh yeah, was was a huge apologist oh. for the South. So here's another quote of his. Above all, we must realize that no arsenal or no weapon in the arsenals of the world is so formidable as the will and moral courage of free men and women. It is a weapon of our adversaries in today's world. uh, It is a weapon our adversaries in today's world do not have. It is a weapon that we as Americans do have. Let that be understood by those who practice terrorism and prey upon their neighbors. So we've got here vague threats to vague enemies. Mention our weapons, but our moral fortitude more. Look out, y'all are on notice, but only vaguely so. Here's another quote, and this is actually the second specific policy thing he mentions. It would be fitting and good, I think, if on each inaugural day in the future years, it should be declared a day of prayer. So it is a specific course of action. It's very Billy culty, Graham. and it's it's a no, not not Billy Graham, not Billy Graham. Who am I blaming? Oh, damn it! Falwell. Well, a little bit. Falwell. Yeah. Falwell. Yeah. Fucking Falwell. And this is fucking a Baker. All of those dickwads. Terrifying dog whistle. God damn it! To the religious right. Well, okay, and and I'm I'm gonna throw this out here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's not a dog whistle to the religious right. It's in a any, bullhorn. in any, well, one, one, it's a bullhorn. Two, um, you cannot separate the religious right from the Confederate movement in this fucking country. I, <laughs> I, because you know the whole reason, the the whole goddamn reason that uh, we have the problems we have right now in our country. Speaking as a teacher, for a second, and a union rep for teachers. Mm-hmm. The reason that we have the problem we have in our country right now with uh, 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 charter schools stealing money from public school systems mm-hmm. is because back in the 60s, fucking white people in the fucking South didn't want their kids to go to, to uh, 
to non-segregated schools. So they found the excuse of forming religious schools, which allowed them to exclude people who they didn't like. Yeah, they they excluded these religious schools would exclude black people 20 times more often than they would exclude white people. Well, yeah, and and on top of that, they charged tuition, mm-hmm. which created a financial barrier, which made it even more convenient to exclude black people because, yep. you know, who's going to have the money? Redlining's the thing. You know, yeah, redlining is the thing, and that busing uh, was trying you know, to overcome, and, yeah, <laughs> and then busing, they reacted yeah. to that, and then yeah. they figured out, yeah, they figured out a way to game the system again, yeah. and and that is that is the backbone mm-hmm. of all of the fundamentalist right-wing Christian latching themselves onto the tit of the Republican Party bullshit mm-hmm. that we've had to deal with. And, and you know, um, Barry Goldwater mm-hmm. was a lunatic, but he was entirely correct on one thing and that was mm-hmm. that if the Republican Party allowed itself to be to become allied with the religious right mm-hmm. it would never be able to separate itself yeah never I and now and now what do we see we see professed Christians mm-hmm. across this country literally saying that our current president has been chosen by God right and they overlook and 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 as now speaking not only as a teacher and a public employee but speaking as a catholic mm-hmm. the idea that they would be open to considering that level of heresy says so much about how actually christian they fucking are that it ooh, it's branding it is, though it is disgusting. They took up it's, branding, well, it's, and it, it yeah. had a confluence. It 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 dovetailed with the rise of mass media on a national scale. It dovetailed with cable, because you had televangelism, and it's not like we didn't have this in the 30s. By the way, you did Foursquare Church. You had yeah, Father Coughlin. Yeah. Um, you had all that, but you know, and and they were just pro fasci. These people are, are um, also that, but um, but they're they're making they're such grifters that they're making a shit ton of money on it, and if, if your brand is Jesus and it's making it so you've got a lot of money and you can you know I don't know say rape your secretary with no consequence then why wouldn't you keep doing that like that's well, that's a yeah. good grift if you're a horrible human being and if you can get somebody who used to be a movie star who somehow just keeps falling over backward into successful office, then of course you're going to latch on to that. Like it's, it's, I love how you characterize it falling over backwards. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) So here's the real kicker though, right? I could actually pull on any inauguration speech and do this. That's kind of the point of inauguration speeches. All right. But Reagan did this throughout his presidency. Very little substance, lots of comfort. In fact, his predecessor, Jimmy Carter, got dragged for not doing that because he actually spoke the truth about America's State of the Union at the time. He said the State of the Union was weak. He's the only guy I can recall who's ever said it. 
Um, and feel free to hit us up at uh, at Geek History Time on the Twitter and correct us. Um, but the very but you won't because you can't because <laughs> he is the only one to have actually come out and done it. Gauntlet even laid even down. during the Civil War. Yeah. Even even during the Civil War, Lincoln didn't say that during a State of the Union. Yeah, and and just prior so. to Woodrow Wilson, nobody delivered it in front of Congress either. They would just send it over as a letter. Uh, that's a good yeah. point. Yeah, true. But yeah, he gets dragged, and at the very same thing that Reagan used to beat Carter over the head with and walk away with the presidency is that fact that he said it, and Reagan was like, no, 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 I'm going to lie to them instead. Now, Reagan wasn't new in being substanceless in his speech. He was just really good at substanceless speech. <laughs> and It was a talent. Yes, and that made him people's idea of what a good leader sounded and looked like. All image, no reality. He was a very effective marionette for playing Ubu. And that made it somehow more palatable to the passive middle, enabling them to be complicit in what he actually did instead of what he said he was doing. What we were then doing during his presidency was play acting. And really, that's what Larson is calling out in his comics. It's all play acting. It doesn't actually matter what's said or done. It just matters that it sounds like it makes sense. So here's an image and a caption and push it as far into juxtaposition as possible to grossly overstate the absurdity of it and finally show us what we're doing with our own grotesque reflections. Hey, look at me, everybody. I'm a cowboy. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Like, do you know how fucking dark that particular cartoon was? He's wearing the cowboy hat because they're all eating the cowboy. Yeah. Howdy, howdy, howdy. Yeah. Like, like, look at that juxtaposition. And when you are in a world where everybody's play acting at democracy, playing act, play acting at this moral high ground, and everybody in office is play acting at it too, it's all so absurd. It's all marionette stuff. So what does that bring about? What does that encourage in an artist? Howdy, howdy, howdy. Like... Let's ju juxtapose the reality of seven or eight vultures sitting around a corpse. Juxtapose it with like a, a kid playing dress up. And that shit's funny. Yeah. So all of this led You're to a greater. Sick, Harold. Sick, sick, sick. <laughs> yeah. Like you want to talk about dark cartoons. Mm hmm. Cannibalistic yeah. cows. Like just. Yeah, it's the same. It's the same thing. Yeah. Or 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 in a, in a similar vein. Um, <clears throat> oh, relax. Chicken soup is good for a cold and it isn't anybody we know. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like you can go back through and find some dark shit in, in your yeah. and stuff. Now, all of this led to a greater sense of paradoxical certainty and uncertainty at the same time. The world was edging closer and closer to nuclear holocaust being a reality. Technology that was supposed to keep us all safer was just as dangerous as the madman at the switch. And even the movies reflected that, like in War Games. War Games, by the way, this movie, absolutely influenced Ronald Reagan to write NSDD-145, the first presidential order to specifically deal with computer security. I'm going to say that again because it's that's where we were. The president watched a movie about a kid using a modem to hack the national defense grid. And he made policy because of the movie he saw. That's absurd. Well, okay. So is, so is the president, 
you know, getting legislation passed for, for cleaning up the canning industry because of a novel everybody read. I disagree. Not everybody read it. First of all, literacy was okay. not as big. Second of all, a novel is wildly different than a movie. I feel like you're engaging in genre ghettoism by saying that. I'm I was gonna, saying, okay, I'm, here's here's why I'm going to I'm going to push a little further with this. That novel okay. was written with a specific political intent. This okay. movie was made to entertain and it was seizing on something that was new and entertaining at the time. I think okay. those are two different purposes. I would say okay. that if I said simply by the virtue of the the novel, this one has papers and this one has celluloid. Yeah, I think you would be right. Okay. But I think, I okay. mean, Upton Sinclair was absolutely a muckraker. Um, with, and oh, he yeah. Was, he was grinding that axe. Whereas the guy who did War Games, he, he was making a movie for a studio yeah. for entertainment. Okay. Yes. I mean, I mean, the, I, I, the, the jungle I, was I, a socialist polemic. Like the second yeah, half well, of yeah, the jungle was, is like, here's why socialism is better. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah. And and what it and and you know, if you want to talk about absurdism, mm -hmm. you know, it was meant to be a socialist polemic. You know, up with the workers. You know, look at how horrible the working conditions are, and the legislation that actually got passed as 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 a result of it was, mm -hmm. you know, the FDA being created because, mm -hmm. oh my God, you mean there's rat poop in my food? Yeah. So, but, but what I'm, what I'm going to argue mm -hmm. again a little bit, and I, I see where you're coming from, but I'm, mm -hmm. I'm, I'm going to continue to push a little bit on it. Um, I'm going to go to William Gibson. Okay. And that is, uh, science fiction, which sure. is sure. what it's, I mean, it's speculative. It wasn't really, it wasn't, it wasn't, you know, crazy science fiction, but it was science fiction. Mm -hmm. Uh, war games, brought up to the forefront by virtue of, okay, you know, if we have the system that's being run by a computer, what are the ramifications of that? I'm going to spin this out in order to tell the story. Mm -hmm. Until that science fiction writer, screenwriter, sat down to write that out, nobody had come up with that policy because nobody had thought of it. So, okay. so... But how, how could they not have thought about not, it if they... Not, if they'd gotten all the mainframe computers on board in NORAD, like we had been updating our computerization there. Whereas if you go back to the jungle, everybody knew the meat was rancid. I mean, shit, the, the, the meat for the Spanish American war killed more people than, than Cuban bullets. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. that was a known thing. And then it became like, okay, you've got yeah. this groundswell. It wasn't just the jungle that led to that. Whereas yeah, over here well, you've got you've got war games, you know, and and modems are pretty new, as far as consumers go, and 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 all that kind of stuff. But we knew that things were well, computerized. I, I think, well, yeah, everybody knew things were computerized, mm -hmm. but what what was nascent at at that point mm -hmm. was that was that was we're getting into talking about you know phone freaks. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, computer, computer students, programming students, you know, uh, going through the telephone company's dumpster, uh, you know, to get to get numbers. Right. And and the thing is. NORAD and DARPA and all of those people had been connecting those computers together, but nobody had thought about the 
ramifications of, well, if we're doing all of this through the phone lines mm-hmm. and everybody and, and, and all of a sudden now consumers have access to a modem, nobody, nobody had made that jump in the same way that science fiction authors mm-hmm. failed to to conceive of what the World Wide Web was going to look like or what it was going to do. Nobody, it, it, is, it is very, very hard mm-hmm. for anybody, especially anybody like, like the kind of people who work for NORAD mm-hmm. or any of, or any of, the, or, or any of the, the, the organizations that are, that are doing that kind of work, they, they, there is, a, there is a, a definite tendency to, to lose the forest for the trees. Mm-hmm. And, and you know, this, this is the thing that I'm working on. This is my project. And over here we have this other person's project. Right. And, and seeing the second and third order ramifications of stuff mm-hmm. is one of those places where historically I think it is more notable where everybody gets it right. Mm-hmm than when they are completely blindsided by some new development. Mm-hmm. And when a science fiction author comes, comes along and says, okay, well, we have this thing and we have this thing. What if I throw these th- two things together and, oh, hey, look, here's this story I can tell. And then all of a sudden, everybody watching it who knows anything about how those things work goes, <gasps> oh, okay. shit. Okay. So, I would, I would so, yeah, I would still say that a guy who grew up making movies, being influenced by a movie screening, and then making policy because of that, when he's got I'm, an intelligence yeah. community right there. I mean, his yeah, vice no, president I'm, used to be the head of the CIA. Was, yeah, had been. Had, so, yeah, no, I, I, yeah, totally get what you're saying there. Yeah, and I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying that to try to defend him Mm -hmm. i just think it meaningful to point out that you know this is one of those things that science fiction as a genre Mm -hmm. has done like like hg wells coming up with the idea of the submarine sure and and you know the level of devastation that, that could be carried out by that okay uh star trek and cell phones right yeah you know is just kind of that's i i think i think that that movie getting made and and being like, oh wait, hold on, people can do that. Okay, we got to do something about that. Well, and I think that movie getting made, by the way, the the thesis statement of that movie was at the very end was the only way to win is not to play. Going mm-hmm. right back to the prisoner's dilemma. Yeah, interestingly. So here, let's talk about the day after then. Um, <laughs> you know, for a little bit of yeah. uplift and, and so, cheerfulness. Yeah, so great. First. Uh, after the day after, so it'd be the day after, after, um, there was a bit of an all-star debate on ABC's viewpoint, um, in which Carl Sagan was debating with a few other people. And he made this point. He said, quote, imagine a room awash in gasoline. And there are two implacable enemies in that room. One of them has 9,000 matches. The other 7,000 matches. Each of them is concerned about who's ahead and who's stronger. So Carl Sagan is pointing out how absurd everything is. And uh, we've gone well past any kind of morality at this point, well past any kind of common sense. 
And secondly, I'd point out that Reagan was impacted by what he saw on TV. He saw an advanced screening of it and wrote in his diary that the film was, quote, very effective and left me greatly depressed. And that the made-for-TV movie changed his mind on the prevailing policy of a nuclear war. Not scientists, not ethics professors, not experts. TV. Yeah. So while this is happening, and he's being influenced by movies and television, the movie star was, the not-quite-a-star movie star, um, the belief in American exceptionalism was on the rise, and the closer we got to annihilation, the more we felt exceptional. And interestingly, the difference in terms of partisanship approval was greater under Reagan than under, under any president in the modern era. Any. Wait. Yeah, I know. Wait. Yep. I checked. I checked. And even Obama had a smaller gap. Okay, so are we just who, leaving? Like, yeah. are, we, are we just leaving out the tangerine in in the room? Or well, yeah, because his presidency is not over yet, so you can't actually. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. So okay. on average, fair people enough. were fair enough. Yeah. Then. All right. <laughs> <laughs> so on average, people are more and more confident. What? Well, I was just going to say that, like, no, no, I'm, I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure we have a record setter in office right now. Yeah, probably. So, so people are more confident in our survival and our supremacy. The sharper and more nihilistic Reagan's rhetoric toward the Soviet Union got. Oh, we're going to survive this. The closer he gets us to death. Again, absurd. There's another place where overwrought language leads people to showing greater enthusiasm and support, by the way, which was really ascendant in the 80s. Pro wrestling? Yep. Of course. Of course. Of course. Now, I wouldn't call pro wrestling theater of the absurd, as there is actually a structure to it. It has a morality play aspect to it. However, there is a shit ton of absurdity in wrestling, and the play acting is absolutely there. So much so that they actually cut themselves to add to the drama of the fake battle to make it look... It's 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 so convoluted, but it's there. <laughs> it's absolutely there. Well, you know, and, and, and yeah, it, it can't be theater of the absurd. Mm -hmm. Because despite all of the absurdity, not only are there structures... Mm-hmm. But those structures are kind of ironclad. Yes, they are. Like, like the 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 story arc. Mm -hmm. Like, if you if you are, if 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 you are the one looking at the beginning of a particular storyline, mm -hmm. I'm gonna say you probably have about a seventy five or eighty percent chance. Yeah. Of being able to predict. Okay, so step two is gonna be this yep. step. Somewhere Four down the road, is gonna this will some, Somewhere yeah. down here, this is going to happen, and then it's all going to end up with that guy and that guy mm -hmm. uh, actually being, you know, allies at the very end. They're going to wind up coming together, and that dude over there, who mm -hmm. we're not paying any attention to right now, uh, is actually going to be the one who gets turned into the villain of the whole piece. Yes, like because just like a soap opera, just like uh, Jedi Geki. Mm -hmm. Just like any any of those any of those forms of of media, um, 
that that narrative structure mm-hmm. is is critical and it is yeah. it is inexorable uh and and so it's it's in some ways the antithesis of theater of the absurd uh-huh that's absolutely true yeah theater of the absurd the literal antithesis of it i think is improv combat uh, like yeah, yeah. okay so there is a president who is absolutely playing the part of being the president and a country that is absolutely buying into that part and nobody is really making any choices of any substance while pretending at having morality at the highest levels. And meanwhile, Gary Larson is cartooning and pointing out how silly just about anything he puts in his panels is. He was nearly in 2,000 papers, like I said, about 1900, uh, taking home award after award after award. There were no recurring characters. There were just recurring archetypes. There was a tremendous appreciation for the quick in and out nature of it, uh, paired with its subversive nature when it came to the agreed upon norms of language and behavior. So okay. he's pointing out the absurdity of our lives at a time where our lives are increasingly absurd. And that's where I'm going to leave this episode because I actually got to talk okay. about Gary Larson. Um, and then we'll, <laughs> we'll, we'll bring him up uh, okay. to the next one. So um, where can people find you on the social media? On the social media, I can be found on Twitter at E.H. Blaylock. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> we collectively can be reached on the Twitter at Geek History Time. Mm-hmm. Um, I individually can be found on Instagram at E.H. Blaylock. Mm-hmm. Or Mr. I'm sorry, Mr. Blaylock, M.R. Blaylock. Uh, which is also where you can find me on TikTok until such time as the app gets shut down as an organ of the Chinese government. <laughs> uh, <laughs> by an organ of the uh, Russian government. By by an organ of yeah, well now, <laughs> yeah. Uh, so so where can they where can they find you if they want to yell at you about having gotten Camus wrong? Uh, you can find me uh, on Twitter and Instagram at DaHarmony. Um, two H's in the middle there. Um, and you can find me on every Sunday night, uh, with Johnny Taylor doing, uh, calling it in the ring, uh, on twitch.tv forward slash calling it in the ring. Uh, and then you can also find me on, uh, Tuesday nights at twitch.tv forward slash capital puns. And that noise that you heard was me horribly, horribly doing a, a terrible job of trying to bring up my TikTok because Capital Punishment does have a TikTok, but I'll be damned if I can find our account. So I'll have to find that in the interim. Uh, (laughs) You kids and all your book learning. Anyway, uh, so for A Geek History of Time, I'm Damien Harmony. And I'm Ed Blaylock. And until next time, let's get this baby off the ground.